just so busy here at Prolific Headquarters. Just gotta get this episode right. Oh no, the listener's here. Somebody cue the music. Just cue the music, Karen. Well, hello again, dear listener. I didn't see you coming through the office entrance. I have to get Karen to increase security. Anyways, this episode is about feminism and feminist studies in composition. Continuing the series of episodes focusing on composition studies, this time around we're looking at the history of feminism as it's been adapted into composition studies, uh, shaping it, directing it, and leading us to where we are now. First, we're running through some of the more important issues shaping the attention to feminist issues in the field, moving toward what feminism looked like and looks like in the field now, and we're going over some useful resources for learning more about the history of feminism in the field. At the end of this episode, I move out of the office and into a conference room with a conversation with three other graduate students about our experiences with feminism and in composition studies. The conversation is really good. Um, I cried while editing this episode, so I hope you really enjoy it. Now, feminism. If we're going to start at the beginning, then let's go all the way back to 1971. This is when I found the first article dealing with composition and feminism, Identity and Expression, a Writing Course for Women, written by Florence Howe. The article gets at writing as a practice that was mainly meant for men, and Howe says that her women writers often felt that other writers who are women, including themselves, are inferior writers. She talks about how women in all the spaces that they move through are rarely allowed just to be women with other women. The rest of the article is devoted to detailing a course she created for women to feel like intellectuals, especially in a world that still tells them that they are not. If you're a teacher and you're looking for a nice structure for a feminist-inspired course, I think that this article, which was published in College English, is a nice one and is worth revisiting, even all these years later. Now, Rope was getting at something very critical to what was happening with feminism at that time, which was what was called second-wave feminism. The people belonging to that movement wanted to account for the ways women's lives were shaped by sexism, which in turn isn't everything. Now, for a deeper look into what feminism looked like during this time, stay tuned for the conversation at the end of this segment. What's important here is that the wave of feminism sort of dictated the earliest feminist issues in the field. Take, for example, these two pieces. First, we have Sexism in Five Leading Collegiate Dictionaries by Maxine Rose, published in College Composition and Communication in 1979. And then we have Sexist Language in Composition Textbooks, still a major issue, by Mary DeShazer, published in the same journal but in 1981. And yes, that still is a major issue is a question. These two articles get at the issue of how naturally sexist language is. Take, for example, the universal he, which assumes a writer, reader, or whatever the noun is, is always a man. Masculinist language and working to resolve it was, and quite frankly still is, a topic that we contend with in composition. And I think we can trace those efforts to these articles. In fact, within this journal, I saw an instance of actual sexism during my research. DeShazer writes about how textbooks still use the universal he, and how problematic that is, and she points out how male-dominated English is as a language, and offered strategies for people to avoid using sexist language. Well, after that, some guy named A.M. Tibbetts responded to her article saying things like, well, you recommend all of these things, but the Oxford English Dictionary says to do this, and he said that it would be too much trouble to make sentences fit with a he or she construction like we normally see today. Although, as an aside, we are moving toward a singular they. 
Basically, he's stifling her critique by pointing to a bunch of institutions, which are all male-dominated, of course, and telling her that they're right and she's wrong. What a jerk. Of course, these start to get at feminist approaches to language issues, and of course, as a field dealing primarily with language, these shape the field's earliest ventures into feminism. So, moving into third-wave feminism and the formative influences it had on the field, let's talk about composing. Composing as a woman, that is. That's the name of the article. <laughs> Written by Elizabeth Flynn for College Composition and Communication in 1988, the piece is where I saw the first instance of someone using feminism in comp studies within this journal and in comp studies in general. In it, Flynn talks about how the field at the time could be viewed formatively as the feminization of composition, moving away from product-oriented and toward the process focus. Drawing from feminist studies, she says that men and women, according to feminist theories of the time, are socialized very differently, and that comes into play with the way the field is chronicled by men, and the way its constituents are treated, who are mainly women. She also runs through some of the ways female and male students talk about themselves and write in her classes, showing examples of their writing as representations of how women and men develop differently. This gets at broader theory about how people compose themselves, as well as what composing as a woman entails. She asks of us, what does it mean to compose as a woman? Pointing to the writing classroom in particular as a site for answering this question, saying women's experiences, and their writing about them, can serve as a way of undoing the imbalances between men and women. As an echo of a writing course for women, Flynn's piece acts as a connection between the early history of feminism in the field and what feminism looked like in the field at that time, moving from creating a safe space for women to empowering them to fight against a sexist world. Hmm. Fighting. I never think about these things, but that word itself might be considered masculinist. This might seem odd to bring up now, but then again, despite being queer, I am a man, and my ways of seeing the world are shaped by the ways I have grown as someone who is male-identified. Fight to me is as natural a verb to use when thinking about existing in the world as empower is. This also gets at what Flynn writes about. Must our composition always be so... masculine? Of course, these questions, and feminism in general, have had a lot of pushback. Just look at Tibbetts, and um, I'm sure there are other instances out there in journals everywhere. And just look at some similar instances in popular media. Flynn herself had to publish a follow-up to Composing as a Woman because the piece got a lot of criticism for not being real theory or a real methodology. But she argued back, saying that of course people would say this about feminism because it is so different from what we think of as the scientific interrogative, positivist work that we sometimes assume writing research should do and look like. There are, of course, other instances of similar pushback, like in Writing Passionately, Student Resistance to Feminist Readings, and that was written by Janice M. Wolfe, published in 1992 in 3Cs. In that piece, Wolfe details some writing from her feminist-oriented course, much like Howe's course, and she chronicles how she dealt with and resolved that pushback. If you're worried about similar pushback, that article also details how Wolf dealt with her students' own attitudes toward feminism. Now, I have to say, thus far, we've been talking about feminism and comp studies without any focus on the rhetoric side of rhetoric and composition. Truth be told, I haven't really run into much with regards to feminist comp studies in my research. The real plethora of work is in rhetorical studies, for which you can definitely expect an episode in the future. And I suppose this is the perfect opportunity to run through some resources for you, dear listener, if you're interested in checking out and knowing more about feminism and composition studies. 
First, definitely check out the bibliography in Feminist Research and Gender Issues and Rhetoric and Composition, which is available on the Conference on College Composition and Communication website, and there will be a link for that in the show notes. From there, you should definitely check out an article titled Feminist Research Methodologies in Historic Rhetoric and Composition, an Overview of Scholarship from the 1970s to the Present, and that is the whole name. And that article was written by Elizabeth Tasker and Francis Holt Underwood for a Rhetoric Review in 2008. That piece will help you learn about the general history of feminism in academia, and it situates feminism within rhetoric and composition, but with a little more emphasis on rhetoric than it does on composition. Uh, The piece also does a great job of historicizing its topics, which is vital to understanding feminism within rhetoric and composition studies as a whole. Now, like I said before, this podcast focuses mainly on feminist comp studies, but there is a whole lot out there on feminist rhetoric, and I would be remiss if I didn't go over those resources. So if you're interested in learning more about feminist rhetorical studies, definitely check the following resources out. First, definitely check out the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. Uh, That's an organization first founded in 1989, that was the year I was born, by the way, as a move to make space for women who felt like the field and academia in general were not acknowledging the need for work in and support for feminist rhetorical scholarship in history. Uh, The website for them has a resources tab that has a ton of information about mentoring, feminist praxis, and more. It's definitely worth checking out. Uh, The Coalition also has a journal called Patho, and it's a must in terms of feminist resources. You'll definitely want to check that journal out if you're interested in seeing what feminist work and scholarship looks like in rhetoric and composition. Next, here are some names of people whose works you'll want to check out if you're interested in feminist rhetorical scholarship. And don't worry, these names will also be in the show notes as well. First, we have Patricia Bazell, Sharon Crowley, Cheryl Glenn, and Susan Jarrett. And then definitely check out Shirley Wilson-Logan, Andrea Lunsford, Jacqueline Jones-Royster, and then Gisa Kirsch, Cynthia Self, and Lynn Worsham. And finally, there's also Michelle Bailiff. Also, so sorry if I mispronounce any names. I know I hate when people mispronounce my name. Finally, if you have the money for it or if your library has it, definitely check out this book, Women's Ways of Making It in Rhetoric and Composition, written by Michelle Bailiff, Deborah Diane Davis, and Roxanne Mountford. According to the book's Amazon page, quote, this volume explores how women in the fields of rhetoric and composition have succeeded despite the challenges inherent in the circumstances of their work. Focusing on these women generally viewed as successful in rhetoric and composition, this volume relates their stories of successes and failures to serve as models for other women in the profession who aspire to make it too. To succeed as women academics in a sea of gender and disciplinary bias, and to have a life as well. Um, end quote. <laughs> in the next segment, we also touch on similar stories of making it in this field, which we now turn to. And I hope this segment in particular was helpful, listener. I definitely learned a lot about the topic doing research for this episode, so I hope you did too. For now, let's turn to a conversation I had with three other graduate students here at Michigan State University about feminism and composition studies. So this is another episode, and I'm here with a couple of other graduate students, once again, from Michigan State University. Uh, Do we want to go around and introduce ourselves? Let's start this way, whatever direction this is. Counterclockwise? Clock? (laughs) I don't remember. Let's just, you go first. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm Anissa Cox, and I'm a first-year PhD student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. I'm Suvanna Cooley, and I'm a second-year PhD PhD student in writing rhetoric in American cultures. Um, My name is Bree Strayergian, and I am a second-year PhD student in the same program as these other two. So we're all rack folk. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Is that a term? Rack folk or rackies? I like rackies? to say rackies. I don't know. Rackies. Oh, I've never heard rackies. that before. But yeah. <laughs> I like rackies. Like we're from the like it's a Michigan thing too, right? We're from the rackies, and we like to drink oh. pap. Oh, yeah, that was a good uh, <laughs> Michigan imitation. Accent from the land of rack. That works. <laughs> so today we're getting together to talk about feminism. Yay. Particularly in composition studies, or if we can try to make those connections if we want, like talk about feminism and comp and see how we see those <clears> connecting. <throat> let's start with what kind, or let's start with what's our history with feminism. I'll go first. So uh, I think I was one of those people that, um, much like maybe many liberals, just sort of assume that they are a thing. Um, and I sort of assumed that I was a feminist, but I didn't really have a sense of what that actually meant or what a feminist consciousness was until I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and I was asked to join a feminist reading group. Uh, and I spent over two years in that group, and we would meet every month and do readings and have discussion. And it was in that space that I actually feel like I developed more of a feminist consciousness, or I began to develop that consciousness um, because I think that it's ever developing for me. Cool. At first, I was—I thought you were going to say feminist commune. I don't know why. That would be awesome. No, I was born in a commune. Is there such a place? I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Paradise. Um, I'll go next. My is almost kind of the opposite of yours in some ways. I grew up um, very conservative, evangelical, religious, and um, feminists were bad. Feminists are evil. So, um, so I think that I always grew up thinking that uh, feminists were man-haters and things like that. So once I actually discovered what feminism was and read on it and kind of more even just experienced it, um, I, it, it was a very liberating, freeing thing. So I think it was almost like old school feminism for me, like liberation from the domestic, you know, that kind of stuff versus mm -hmm. um, how it is kind of perceived a little differently now. I guess I'll go next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no said turnover. No, like, I know. Yeah. Um, essentially for me, I think it was something that I was and just didn't have a name for. Um, I grew up again and also a very uh, with in a religious background I'm uh, Muslim but my mother was a lecturer on female genital mutilation um, sort of did uh, was a social worker and and worked in um, settings that kind of uh, worked to liberate women um, specifically the Somali population from uh, some of the patriarchal um, situations or um, expectations that they lived under in their homes or in the culture and community. Um, so it was a lens I seem to have had because of my <laughs> familial background, but I didn't have a name for it. And even even though I knew the term, I didn't know. I don't know if I had would have considered myself one by merit of being Muslim and black and and that taking shape in different ways. Mm -hmm. So. It's interesting to think of how that word translated in so many different cultural contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my experience, um, I never knew anything about it. I hadn't seen the word. I didn't know what it was until I went back to school to finish my uh, bachelor's. And I was taking a class about critical theory and we read Gloria Anzaldúa. And I read 
like Chicana feminism, and yeah. I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> okay, then. oh, yeah. <laughs> and particularly, like particularly with her approach, I started to see how my own life shaped by like my experiences living with my foster family who are Mexican American, mm-hmm. and the way I was treated with that, or uh, in that in that setting, like um, my dad was from Mexico. So he would be like, you don't do the dishes. They do the dishes. You're outside with me doing the yard and stuff. And that's what men's, or men, that's the work that men do. But my sister was like, um, if you give me $10, I'll go out there and I'll like do it for you. <laughs> well, once. Um, but like my sister wanted to go work construction with us too, right? But my mom wouldn't let her because like you're a woman, you don't do that. And then I also thought about like the way that my mom would have to cook for us all the time and like... I just assumed that it was something that it was done. Like the women would just tend, like mm-hmm. yeah, like yeah. if you went anywhere, it was the women who would be the ones saying, "Did you need anything else?" or "Let me pick up after you," or whatever. Like it was always just assumed in those settings, right? So I never thought about that. I just assumed like that's just our culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. But reading on Zaldua was like, oh, whoops, <laughs> my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. But Anzaldúa also was like my foray into like feminist theory because. She comes at it from a very queer perspective, too, which is my perspective. So, like, going into feminism from queer theory was very interesting um, since the two are so related and branch off. Or maybe not even branch off, but are still kind of very relevant to each other still, but kind of have the same foundations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's where I came from it. And I'm here. (laughs) Um interesting so mine is academic my experience with it is very academic mm. was and yours was too was it yeah I would say that I discovered feminism through academia mm-hmm. for sure because even when I came back to school I was still very much operating mm-hmm. the dishes the um and it was it took me a long time even I didn't go back to school till I was 30 to do my bachelor's and part of the reason that I actually didn't go when I was 18 was because I was a girl um, because my parents didn't think they paid for my brothers and my sister and I. Mm. It's not the, worth the investment into mm. school because we'll just be um, wives and mothers. Yeah. So why? You don't need a career. You know, like you, we should spend the money on my brothers. Um, and so I didn't end up going and I had children young and got married young and then um, at 30 went back. And so I think that impulse was there, but then it was also just a lot of unraveling and it took me a long time because... Um, even those first couple of years of going back, I experienced a lot of, I can't think of the word, but a lot of resistance from the community I was a part of because I had been a stay-at-home mom for mm. 10 years. And then going back to school, there's a lot of, what are your children going to do? Who's going to take care of them? I'm like, me? I, my husband? I don't know. Like, um, that responsibility was still placed on you. Absolutely. In that it's, not, it's your job. Oh, always, yeah. always. All of it was. Yeah. So then... But I think over the years, um, progressively, that's shifted a lot. And so I think reading Anzaldua and reading some of these other things, it just was utterly eye-opening for me. It was like almost like a kind of cathartic experience reading those texts. Um, and not only ones that are strictly theory-based, I think also reading creative nonfiction. Um, I thought about that a lot, kind of what feminist texts have um, helped me. And I don't even think it's always theory-driven texts. Sometimes it's creative pieces or even fiction that kind of unlocked some of that too as well yeah the critical theory class that i took was a fiction 
based class. It was all like apply this theory to fiction. Interesting. So it was like Adrian Rich and others. Yeah. I can't remember right now, but um, I'm sure I can dig up that syllabus somewhere. But yeah, it was eye-opening, like not liberating, because that's an icky term sometimes to use with those kinds of classes. But um, game changing. I I mean, I think I was predisposed to feminism, even if I didn't also call it that. I think my mother was someone who worked on the assumption that culture was oppressive and oppressive along race and gender lines and mm-hmm. would talk a lot about that inside of her own personal relationships of like what roles women and men are assigned and how that can be oppressive. And mm-hmm. um, I was certainly um, told that I could do a number of things and be a number of things. Um, and I think that she... I remember as a kid her reading this book called Women Who Run With the Wolves, which I think Mm. is maybe like sort of second wave feminism. Maybe I would position it there, but it looks at myths and women's roles and sort of like the mythos around that and cultural stories um, from way back and the psyche. And um, and I remember her just being like very into that, like what does it mean to be a woman and what are we carrying culturally and historically and emotionally um, in the ways that we've been taught to be um, in relationship to our communities or our spaces. Right. Yeah. Um, I think in connection to my background, there was definitely this odd dichotomy happening in a Muslim home because my mother, when she would cook, because she was the primary, you know, and she's a great cook, you know, we'd be like, Dad, just sit down. <laughs> but there was, she would say it was because she wanted to, you know, it was a choice. Yes. It was something that she chose to do, but she also grew up, you know, she was the eldest girl in her family of a family of 13, had mm. three older brothers, and kind of felt that, again, this is in Somalia, in, a, in an Islamic context, she was the provider. You know, she mm-hmm. was in charge of making sure everyone got food, and, and there was a lot of resistance building up in her, mm. seeing the ways in which the women in the household had to navigate. You know, she wanted to go to school, too. Her brothers were... Um, excelled in school and ended up in Italy for uh, undergrad like and then ended up living there after like in the 70s she never got those opportunities Um, and I think you know when she talks about it not that she hasn't done amazing work after that fact but she um, all of those all of her lived experiences kind of pushed and shaped her feminist practices you know Mm -hmm. and I think for her in, in our upbringing, it's not that she ever called it that, but the act of self-reliance, the fact that you can be and do whatever you, you want. And my brother was, I mean, we were, no one, we, we all cooked, we all cleaned. There was no, um, the, the base hierarchy, which she got called out for within the Somali community. They'd be like, <laughs> what's, your bro- what's your son doing in the kitchen? You know. Right. So I think these cultural norms were still place I just had the privilege and fortune of having uh, a mother who didn't want that for her daughters so it was nice but at the same time when she was practicing something that she knew could could seem or be deemed problematic by us she'd be like listen I'm cooking because I love to cook just just so you know if you love to do if you love to do laundry in the future you can do it no (laughs) just Position, you know, it was about positions. And was that kind of like a conversation with the rest of the community too? Every now and again. I think there was, again, for her, she didn't want to push back to the point of like 
disrespecting someone else who mm-hmm. was still within that social confine. Right. You know, like... Because I think about, like, doing the laundry and being like, I'm doing this because I love to do it. Like, staying out the window. <laughs> I sure love that It's car. so great. No, it's within our own home. No, I think, if anything, she was more performative in the community setting sometimes, mm. you know. It, it would just come out in different ways where, you know, my son, she'd be like, Father, my brother would go and get something and would, everyone would be like, what? The boy got it, you know, like, but um, that's interesting. But in terms of like shaping and then moving forward, like, I'm grateful for that background. But at the same time, it is coming here and being like, whoa. But then you also even looking at second wave feminism being like, not me. <laughs> So it just, it varies because of our lived experiences, too. So So what do we mean by second wave feminism? Like, what would be, like, (laughs) sorry. So what would be, like, a good, um, like, an elevator pitch about what, I hate using that term because it's such a business (laughs) masculinist term, right? Like, sell yourself to me and tell me why I should hire you. But if somebody was asking, what is second second wave feminism, how would you respond? It's an, that's an interesting question for me because I think that I was more trained to critique second wave than to endorse it. Um, and by trained, I mean like very informally inside of this feminist reading group that I was a part of. Um, and I think that critique tended to be that second wave feminism had been like co-opted by the neoliberal um, capitalist society and that we were trained to think like, uh, the lean-in woman, right? That mm-hmm. equality means being the leaders of corporations and that it's very white, that it's very heteronormative, um, and that that, in fact, was not very relevant to intersectional approaches. Um, mm-hmm. And so there I learned some of the intricacies and complications um, around, like, how do we really have an intersectional feminist perspective? And then that, that was delineated for me against <clears throat> second-wave feminism pretty strongly. Um, from the women that I was learning from and with. Cool. Does that feel accurate accurate at all? (laughs) No, I agree with you. I would agree with that, too. That's beautifully put, I think. Yeah, and I think that that's still something that I experience and have had recent experiences even where there's pushback, I know, on um, (laughs) certain choices that people make that to stay in what are maybe typical woman roles... Um, even sexually or in domestically, whatever that looks like that, similar to what your mom is saying, mm-hmm. I'm choosing to cook. Mm-hmm. I, I know I don't have to do this thing. I want to. But then other women um, pressuring you to not because then that you're kind of, you look like or are representing something that... It was like the reading we did in... Oh my gosh, when they were talking about... Um, Queen Latifah and Salt and Pepper being uh, feminist uh, scholars, essentially, mm-hmm. because of the work that they do, and even though that would be challenged because they're coming from an artistic standpoint and some of their work is sexualized, mm-hmm. um, they still have a, a core message kind of rooted in, in feminist practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it pushes against that second wave thing of you have to be this... To be a feminist, you should be in a power suit and vigilant against norms. I wonder if it's elevator pitch, though, to me, it would be more like feminism is about giving women choices, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's all this subtext around what those choices 
are or look like. Right. Like what's a wrong and right choice yes. look like. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it discounts the fact that people's choices are really different based on where they come from. And yeah, what I was their, say their lives are different. What too. their lives look like. Okay, um, I guess we can go further down the list. Um, so we talked about Anzaldúa. Who are some other like figures that we think about when we like think of feminism? Maybe even feminism and composition studies. I mean, I think of the big one that we talk about a lot, Royster and Kirsch, um, feminist rhetorical practices. I think mm-hmm. that that's a big one. Um, Would that be considered composition, though? Or is um, it more from the rhetoric side of things? It's a little that's where I because it's like not about teaching. Well, it is about teaching writing. It has a huge yeah, pedagogy yeah, right. component. I think it's both, really. I think they've positioned it to do both because um, they they do talk a lot about being in the classroom and teaching writing from kind of the perspectives that they take while doing research. You know, the strategic contemplation and um, social something and that terrible. I don't remember. There's the four things. Um, but they're, yeah, and they use them in their research, but then they also use them in the classroom and encourage their students to use them in writing. So I, that's a big one I think of. It's interesting, though, because when I think of that, and I think of that, I think of it's more like very practical um, feminist composition work versus Ansel Dua, which is like, you know, a punch in the gut kind mm-hmm. of experience to read for me, at least. Um, it's very different yeah doing research for like because the front part of this podcast is going to be should be like whoever's listening to this should have already have listened to everything that i'm talking about but it's going to be like a historical run through of feminism as it's been kind of incorporated into composition studies Mm -hmm. and doing research for that the first piece that i found was like people talking about you know language itself and how inherently sexist it is because like we focus Mm -hmm. on like the universal he or something but uh, one interesting thing that I saw was a course called, um, let me see, it was in 1971, and it was Identity and Expression, a writing course for women. And it was basically um, someone saying, hey, let's get, let's cut the, let's cut this BS and let's see what happens and we have a composition course for women and what that looks like. Mm. So it was like an honors course that um, basically was just like this huge feminist practice that um, I don't remember how the article ended because I don't think I've read it yet, but... Um, when I, what comes to mind though is I think of methodology in terms of feminism mm-hmm. and like are there feminist methodologies in research and what does that look like, whether it's autoethnography or ethnography or... Oral um, histories or Oral histories, yeah, yeah sort of reclaiming narratives mm-hmm. and subjectivities mm-hmm. in a way that that Western male canon mm-hmm. sort of erases or renders invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you sent us the document, I actually went back to the reading group list from when I joined that reading group, and the first thing we read was um, the early Hosschild, A Piece from the Managed Heart, um, the commercialization of human feeling, and also then Hosschild and Ehrenreich, um, Global Women, Nannies, Maids, and Sex Workers in the New Economy. Um, and so for me, like right away, I started to get this view of labor and um, work and feminism and labors of care and emotion and like what that looks like in these globalized economies. Um, So that was sort of like one of my entry points and I think that's extended for me and I think I'm jumping ahead in your questions, but that extended for me into the work that I do, Mm -hmm. that I wanna do here, like thinking about that 
class and labor centered um, perspective and women's roles um, and feminist roles within that and material perspectives. So, yeah. yeah, I'm looking at the syllabus for the comp studies or the composition course that we're taking right now. And I don't see like a particular week dedicated to like just feminist theory mm. or feminism as it's used, um, studied, applied in composition studies. It's just, and I've seen movements to other ones like right here we have a week dedicated to like multimodality and another one we have one to queer theory, like a bunch of stuff of queer theory with a little bit of feminism thrown in. So they're kind of like incorporated into each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting that the majority of composition teachers are white women at this point, And that a lot of what I know of feminist work that we look at comes from black women, actually, um, in terms of Bell Hooks and Audre mm-hmm. Lorde and Carmen Kennard and these, you know, theorists. Um, and so that strikes me as kind of a tension there or a mm-hmm. place of interest to um, and if we're looking it. at history and origin stories, this origin stories thing that I'm reading is just kind of not what I would think. I'm just now <laughs> noticing how... Speaking of syllabus. Yeah. I'm just noticing how devoid it is of like any attention to feminism. Like here's a thing here. There's a, a study attention to like critical race theory. But I don't see like actual feminism anywhere other than composing as a woman, which is one of the pieces that I saw as um, I saw when I was doing my research. And like that had a lot of like resonance in the field, too. Hmm. Does it seem like I think a lot of um, kind of feminist theory has kind of uh, moved or theorists moved kind of towards queer theory a little bit um, or they, they very much overlap? in a lot of ways. Um. I think in composition studies, I think there, there might have been a move. Because I think of people like Jackie Rhodes, who's here, mm-hmm. and her work in feminism, but how it kind of moved toward queer theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of other people that I know who do both, like Kendall Gerdes at uh, Texas Tech. She's feminism but it's also queer theory so there's always like this but also mm-hmm. and I see like when I was doing research for this I noticed a lot in like particularly in rhetoric there's like a huge like it's its thing it's situated it has its own journal mm-hmm. but in composition studies there's mm-hmm. there's been like a uh, thanks for all the fish kind of situation mm-hmm. Or the elves moving east? I don't know. I can't come up with... (laughs) Yeah, I struggle to even think of, like, a feminist composition practice as just its own, because I think in my head they are overlapped with queer and indigenous and, and, like, thinking about relationality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, a lot of times when I think about composing um, for those things, it's hard for me to muddy out which theory it came from. Um, But I... I think for me, when I was looking at composition studies and looking at those things, I thought a lot about relationality and doing things like this, like composing with people, mm-hmm. um, even doing like, have it be more dialogic where it's like a dialogue mm-hmm. instead of just me kind of monologuing in the paper mm-hmm. um, and looking at how what that looks like. Because I think that that's a lot of ways that um, 
knowledge is made is to kind of together mm-hmm. versus that's right away yeah versus just like one in my own head um but so i think i want to also compose mm-hmm. that way you know in, in many ways so i don't know i know i've tried to at least in my own work try to practice that um and sometimes i practice it to even just be an honest scholar because there will be times where i will have like um a coffee shop discussion with someone about the reading from class and I'm like I don't even know now what's your idea what's my idea what it's all the same so let's we I did this with McKinley then we're like let's just compose our reading response together because we basically that is such a good idea come up with it together and so we just did a dialogue and kind of went through and said these questions and had a conversation and then wrote it because it was we were like this is how it's happened so let's have it look that way instead of us going off into our own little worlds and trying to make the most of what we talked about, mm-hmm. but actually composing it together at the same time, side by like we were in the same document, kind of writing and talking. And I've been in those experiences before where I've been side by side with somebody composing mm-hmm. my response, but it's like we're in our we're in our own little bubbles. We have our headphones in. We're just like mm-hmm. dedicated to done. our screens. But <laughs> I've never been able to like hey, what did you think about this reading? I'm writing my response, and I feel this way, and then have that experience. That is so good. I wish I had thought of that. I know. I was like, I've done it. We've had those conversations. We have a shared office. I've never, never, I might talk to someone about it, but I've never thought to compose with them, you know. People are surprisingly receptive, because even for composition studies, I did a dialogue, Santos, for that, with the whole thing. It was pretty much a dialogue. So we, um, yeah, I think I'm very intrigued by that. Um, way of writing about including kind of um, multiple voices and I think because I learned that way a lot too though (laughs) I like to talk to to people and about the stuff we're reading and right um, half the stuff I learn is outside the classroom just in conversations I often find myself and maybe this is sort of a redirect and we can come back um, because I do think it's connected but I find myself concerned a lot with the feminization of the field itself um, Mm. as a field of composition and that it being a feminized labor and all the things we ascribe to that, like we're supposed to care or mother or things like that. A lot of that, you know, like Eileen Schell wrote about that um, in her book about labor and women in composition studies. And I think that that's still valuable because I think it plays out to where we're seen in the academy and how we're positioned. It filters out to the way that we um, pay people and put people on as contingent faculty or um, you know adjunct faculty, um, the way that people are paid less and really low wages. And I think that a lot of that is the value that we're still working under the system where women's work is seen as less valuable. Mm-hmm. And that goes back historically all the way to the start of our field um, in the first writing programs, like say at Harvard, where um, writing was this technical skill and that literature was the high art. And so they got like women secretaries to right. teach writing. And it was seen as a vocational thing and not as a theoretical thing and not as a research thing for a long time. And that we're now still coming into that in composition studies and so I think I think we're very still tied to those roots um, and I think that is part of my recurring interest in us as laborers and workers within this field um, as writers and as teachers of writing which is interesting because if you consider technical com and it's I mean how mm-hmm. it's very male dominant at this point in the yeah. field I don't know 
not that there aren't women, but and they, but they have like women in tech calm. You know, they have their own almost groups to. Yeah, and I, it's not composition, but they're talking about technical writing, you know, um, yeah. and to see its roots and to see how it's transformed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of technical communication borrows from composition studies. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, reading through a lot of the documents that I was uh, collecting to do research for this, I saw that word so many times, feminization. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I saw that word so many times and people talking about how valuable it is, but I didn't see any talk about what that, how that implicates the field and like what it does to it. Because I think about in my undergrad, so in Texas, um, every public, uh, every employee of a public university has their salary searchable through the Texas Tribune. So I remember one day just like randomly searching the salaries for some of my professors. So I saw... Um, the salary for one of the professors who wrote my letter of recommendation for my MA, and he made close to $100,000. And I was like, wait, how does a professor even make this much money? But then I saw the salary for the woman who heads up the writing department. Or, um, uh, she is in charge of like the writing center there. She like directs the curriculum. She and she teaches still, and she made nowhere near that, like mm. not barely a quarter of that. Wow. And I thought... Well, she might be retired to, um, like she's working, but still, like, how do you, how does that even happen, right? Mm. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Does that happen? Yeah, listener. What can we do about it? I know. Speaking of second wave feminism, it's like, oh, I don't know. It's, I think I think some of it too. I think it goes back to what you said, yeah, like how we value our work um, or how much value we put on it. Mm-hmm. I think about that sometimes. Mm-hmm. I tend to think, oh, I'll do that to help out. or And I wouldn't think that that's something um, that someone would charge for mm-hmm. or that my labor is worth money, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, that I would ask that or expect that. I would mostly be like, oh, well. I'll, I'll help out, whereas other um, people, I think, are more inclined to put value on the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Because we've been taught, you just help out. You are that's a, that's a good thing to do. It's kind. And in the end, <coughs> it can be really destructive for us moving into faculty positions, mm-hmm. right? Because we have discourse around service. And administration. 4020, isn't it? Right. But what we know is what actually gets you tenure is publication. And so frequently women have a hard time getting tenure and doing that part because they're doing <laughs> service work. Mm-hmm. And male colleagues will just publish a bunch and get their tenure. Um, and women are dealing with all these administrative and service roles that they're taking on in committee work, right? And I think that's something that's been talked about. I, I'm not making that up. <laughs> so there are, there are articles out there about that. I think along um, with that, too, I've heard with that conversation about men kind of publishing ahead is often there is a woman at home kind of maintaining of all of this kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And they talk about women in the academy who, are, who have families have not having yes. that same advancement. Yes. We just did we read that together? I probably <laughs> I just I was like, I just read something about yeah. that. Um because then they're also doing care they're doing caretaking, they're doing all of that. 
and mm. trying to get ahead. So it just sometimes makes it, the process a little yeah. take more time. And I think that conversation can be seen like every time I go travel for a conference. And again, depending on the side of the family, how conservative their viewpoints are, I'll be like, wow, your husband's going to be alone with your child again? Poor thing. <laughs> you know, would, would, a, would a man ever be charged with that? And someone who was pursuing, you know, a PhD and you switch genders and all of a sudden it just doesn't matter if he's gone for seven months. You know, <laughs> it's just interesting that, how that dichotomy works. That reminds me of the colloquium class that we're taking as first year uh, PhD students. They had a panel at the beginning and um, it was um, a bunch of people talking about caring for their children. And at first I thought, oh, it's something that doesn't relate to me because as a queer person mm -hmm. children aren't really going to probably be part of my life as an academic but then i then i was having a conversation with someone else who was like but that was actually a really big deal for them to like talk about their families and their lives and like saying it's something that we can talk about here and you're like you're validated for it like it's a real thing as opposed to oh, kids so get your your wife or whoever to take care of them mm -hmm. right that's really interesting. That reminds me, um, when I finished my undergrad, I think, it, as I said earlier, I was in my 30s, and I had three kids, and <clears throat> the head of the English department at the school I was at um, wrote my letter, and she was a, a semi, uh, you know, in her 30s, also successful woman. She had a child, and she told me, she said, when you get to grad school, don't tell them you have children. And I was like, oh... And, um, and I, had, I had had her for um, two classes, and I had not ever told her I had a child until we were in that office together. So she was saying, she goes, they will never take you as serious if they know you have a child, so just don't they're do just it. just going to assume you're busier. Yep. She goes, if you tell them that you have a child, they're going to look at your work as less. And so she said, just don't. And so it was very interesting coming here, and in many ways the culture here is very different. And I remember, I think the first day in class with Candace. Um, Epps Robertson, she, we went around and told our stories and I, I said out loud that I had three children. I remember I was shaking and it was, it was scary to me. And it was one of the first times in a class setting that I had kind of spoken out loud that I had that because I had gone through much of my undergrad, not telling people that I had children, um, cause I could kind of pass mm -hmm. for a student and let them assume I'm a student. And, um, so it was very... Yeah, it was very different, um, but I guess I was like, well, let the cards fall where they do if I, <laughs> you know what I mean, if I say I have kids on the first day, but it was just that contrast of um, that, that that notion is still very strong out there mm -hmm. to have this woman who's powerful in her 30s with children telling me, don't tell people you have kids. Wow. I know. And that's not that long ago. That's what, three, four years ago? So that's not... You know, not in the 1950s. So, <laughs> it wasn't way back. <laughs> That's right now. So, jeez, like, how do you even <laughs> respond to that? That's so. I know. She's right, though. In some ways, I know this sounds terrible, but in certain settings, it is. I, not right, but like, she has. She's right on the pulse of things. That, um, it is sometimes if you put the context of mother on a person or caretaker or whatever, um, that that changes something for them. Then they, there's just additional 
Like when you leave, who's taking care of your child? Mm -hmm. If you don't have a child, no one even asks you that question. No. You know, so. Um, it's It's interesting how I've been thinking about this, but there are these like, uh, hidden elements of a woman's like life and then there's there are things like race mm-hmm. <laughs> and me walking into a you know first year writing classroom and being a black woman and not being able to hide that I can hide being a mom mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think with some I mean as we have a conversations about feminism and in you know this whole intersectional element I don't know I'm, I'm I toggle with the fact that I love I love you know I can I, love, I have the capacity to hide the fact that I'm a mom that I know is damaging I don't have the capacity to hide that I'm a black woman and I know that's also damaging in the academy as I mm-hmm. move and teach and become or do work um, and I found myself um, contending with the fact that I don't know if it's the current climate but people being maybe more uncomfortable mm. now than they have been in the past right. um, I, think, I don't know I'm working through that too so I'm I just, think I'm about just... that all the time um, so as like a Latino who can pass as white sometimes I think about that a lot too because then I tell people my real name or they read my name they, that brings that you you embody a sort of politics that might not necessarily be yours, Absolutely. but right now they are. But um, <laughs> um, just so you know, listener, this podcast is <laughs> like dumb Trump. Um, <laughs> but Hashtag. I can't even imagine like having to walk into a first year writing classroom and yeah, jeez. But then I'm I mean I'm Muslim. You know I have an Islamic background. I, I'm not practicing. Sorry, mom. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> Mom, don't listen. That'll yeah, be the mom, title don't of this listen. podcast. Hashtag, hashtag mom. <laughs> um, but again, it's it's still a very core part of my identity. It's how I grew up. It's my background. It's what kind of lives in my head in a specific way. I'll, I'm fasting during Ramadan. You know, I, I, I participate in specific ways, you know, mm-hmm. and being a Somali and, and part of an immigrant community. There are so many elements that I, I mean, no one would ever have to know about me. They might be like, oh, Subin, that's a different name. Tell me more, you know. Mm-hmm. You're not from around here. I don't know. <laughs> but other than those awkward conversations, sidebar, that's, I mean, those are all things that people can discover about me, you know. Um, there are intersections of my identity that I don't have to, I don't have to bring it up. I don't have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my experience in this body is, like you said, if once you share your name, then there's an, there are, there are, the whole lot placed on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That maybe you didn't ask for, or maybe you don't embody it in any way, shape, or form. It's interesting so. too, is the spaces that we enter that do that to us. Mm. I wonder how we might change them. Uh, I guess the listeners for this ideally are new graduate students. The ideal listener is a new graduate student who's entering these fields and like learning about them and learning about the issues in them. So I guess this would be one of those major issues. So if you, listener, as you're going forward into the world, be kind to other people. And on the other end, also be mindful of the spaces that you mm-hmm. um, come, come ready to fight. Mm-hmm. 
I hate to say that, but I think I've let my God down a couple of times and been like, what? Oh no. Mm-hmm. Who knew that I would be in this situation right now? And that these people, you know, cause you come into academic spaces thinking that, you know, people are familiar with critical race theory and feminist theory and they're open-minded right, right, and right. thoughtful people. And then you embrace a, an, a, an element and then they like unintentionally or intentionally impact you and, place hurt on you not on purpose sometimes but you're like wow ouch you know Mm -hmm. um and kind of navigating that because there is a comfort here sometimes i don't know you get in i don't know some of our grad classes you get real deep especially in rack you know how we we rackies roll (laughs) 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 and then you're like you there's an exposure and openness uh an assumption of a safe space that may or may not be there you know we're still here in, in an academic setting, which has a lot of work to do. You know? mm-hmm. It's a workplace, yeah, too. So. Absolutely. Yeah. It always feels like an, uh, this is maybe a terrible metaphor, I don't know, but it feels like an onion to me. Where there's just like, we get one layer and we're like, yay, we conquered. And then it's like, oh, there's a whole, other there's layer. others layers, then you layers, get to the, layers, layers. You get to the layers. core and you cut it and you stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a you don't ever metaphor. get to the core. You don't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Don't cut the core. It's where the tears become. It's the claim, yeah. isn't it? <clears throat> it is. And in some ways, like, I would like to think and maybe maybe do think that at the heart of a lot of the work that we do is a sense of justice and liberation for students, you know, along multiple lines of, you know, race, class, or gender. But I was at a conference this weekend, and someone was presenting their research about um, how tutors might enact social social justice principles in a practical way inside of their sessions. And one of the respondents asked, like, well, maybe you need some context around, like, why you think social justice deserves to be in oh writing center, right? And oh. someone else from here and I looked at each other and we went, oh, what? my goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, right, I am living in a bubble in a certain yeah. way, yes. way that, like, that isn't a question in Iraq. That isn't a question in this program at all. Like, mm-hmm. we base what we do on that. And I think our field, actually, to a great degree, there's lines of history along. But we're going to move out into spaces and institutions that absolutely probably won't mirror that, may not yeah. mirror that, or only to varying degrees. And how do we encounter that? And like you said, like, how do you keep your guard up in an appropriate way? you know, when you need to, and to know when that is, and, um, and to fight. I think it's a willingness to be open, because I think as a graduate student, you're, you're going to be kidding a lot. (laughs) Um, You have to be open to that learning and that experience. And I think it's actually positive. Some of the negative experiences I've gone through have been really positive for my research, and for my growth as a human being. Um, And then that, like, core understanding that, uh, just because someone knows something that I do doesn't mean that that automatically makes them someone that is safe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm running. I don't want to run on a tangent, but I'm just trying to think about as a new grad student. I feel like you come in and you're like, I'm here to learn and I'm here to be open, and um, that's wonderful. But just be mindful that there's also a lot of breaking that happens while you're doing that mm-hmm. um, through the texts even sometimes just reading something like Anzal Dua can just drop you on the floor and you're like oh, you know <laughs> exactly like that 
hands flailing, crying. Hands flailing, crying. You're like, oh my gosh, yes, borders, yes. You know, but <laughs> that could also be the title. Yeah, borders within me. You know, and and it's just this, yeah, this openness that happens with that learning that you're doing unintentionally. Open also opens you up to relationships and community and space and like be comfortable and embrace that absolutely mm-hmm. but also be willing to hear things that may or may not hurt or affect you when they do happen in that space so your feminism reader listener I always had to do reader because we're so we're writing we're Iraqis <laughs> uh, listener make your feminism as open as possible think about race and class and your gender and other people's genders. Can I snap? Oh yeah, go for it. It's like what's appropriate for for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that this is good. I know some mm-hmm. of us have to go, so mm-hmm. I would just as a final note to be the Marxist that I am. Um, <laughs> dear listener, um, like remember that we do have power. I think this program is building power for us. Um, I think I was thinking back to my own learning in that reading group and the geographical place that I was in and some of the women in that group did an art show at the Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which was the site of the first mill uprising and was led by young women. And so um, protesting just heinous conditions of work, right? And so organizing and labor and women's work does have power even though that we're told that it doesn't. Right? And so I think feminism has power, even though the forces that be right now maybe would tell us that it doesn't. Um, and maybe that's a little Pollyanna and hopeful, but um, I think we have work to do and that we can do that work together. Yeah, we wouldn't be graduate students if we didn't have hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> hope and masochism. Hands. <laughs> the perfect marriage. <laughs> Yeah, every time someone's like, oh, how is your semester going? I'm like, terrible, but I did this to myself. (laughs) (laughs) I can get myself out of it. I did this to myself. (laughs) Okay, well, that was great. Thanks, guys. That was was so good. Thank you. That was a good conversation. (laughs)